Seven. What was the very first horror movie you ever saw? Ooh, probably Rear Window. Yeah? Yeah, it's my granddad's favorite movie, so I would watch it, like, he watched it all the time. Right, so it was probably even on before you could even, um grasp that you were watching a movie yeah yeah <laughs> like i mean like the first movies i ever saw were star wars yeah um probably like lion king or something like that too in there but like yeah no i was definitely i saw star wars all three of them in a weekend when i was staying with my grandparents when i was like three years old mm-hmm. and those are the first movies i remember seeing yeah but then rear window would have to be right around the same time right yeah how about you i was you know i, w- I was i was pondering this question because I know the first one that I saw in theaters, it was much, you know, it was much later. Oh, yeah. That um, took a long, much longer time. Yeah. Exorcism of Emily Rose. Sure. Um, and I went with my first boyfriend because we had like a bet or whatever, because I was like afraid of horror movies at that point, or I thought I was. Um, and that movie did scare the shit out of me. If you want to listen to our episode on it, I'll tell you more about that. <laughs> you'll, you'll hear more about that. But um that's the first one that like I remember seeing, but because my family is not huge into horror movies, right? And nobody, mine seriously is. Yeah, yeah, nobody in my family really is, other than my sister. But she wouldn't have really had an influence on what I watched she is <laughs> as a child. She was not born, <laughs> so oh, she's three years. But um, so significant I don't, when you're six. Yeah, so I don't know. I feel like it would have my answer has to be exorcism of Emily Rose. Um, yeah, just because none of my um, family is really into horror films. It's so funny because like every time we cover something from the past on this podcast, I'm like, oh yeah, I know, I saw that when I was like really young. And it's like, all it's my first time viewing all of them because you know as I got older, I was watching like the current horror film. I didn't right. really think about going backwards. Um, until, you know, obviously we started watching horror movies consistently together. Yeah, because, like, I remember, like, I definitely saw Rear Window really young. I definitely saw Halloween really young, Gremlins. Um, oh, okay, so I saw Gremlins, I, okay, when ABC Family, or that's what it was called then, now it's called Freeform. It's been yeah, Fox it's been, Family. it's been everything, it's been, yeah. It's, it's just like been UPN, bought out. UB, WB, blah, blah, yeah. blah, yeah. Um, okay, so I think Gremlins is actually my answer now that I'm remembering because they did like a 30, 31 days of Halloween or whatever. They do that every yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. And Gremlins was one of them, along with like more like, you know, family friendly, quote unquote, family friendly, like horror films. So uh, like Hocus Pocus and all that shit. They still do it to this day. It's a, it's a tradition, even though they've been bought out by a million other companies and whatnot. Um, so I think my answer might have to be Gremlins because we've said that Gremlins is more of like an up and down horror film than like a horror film for kids. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I would say like my sister and yeah. I watched it when I was probably ten. Sounds we would right. we yeah. would dress up in costumes like every night, do like a different costume. We had a big costume box and we would watch horror like well, horror films, quote unquote. You know. I love you so much. I I've always I've always been this person. <laughs> thank you for allowing <laughs> me to express it. I have seen the receipts. It. I have been to your childhood home. Yes, thank you for allowing me to express it. Anytime, babe. We still have a giant costume box. We do. Hey babe. Yeah, babe. Remember that time we watched The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? You mean the actual first horror film ever made? Yes. <laughs> yes. That is exactly what I mean. The literal first. So I'm Nicole. I am Topher. And we're the horror babes. What a weird thing to say because it's so true. Thank you for that. And yeah, we're covering the very first horror film for our Origins Month here. 
And I'm I'm super stoked about it. Yep. I mean, who can say that they've gone all the way back to the origins? <laughs> We've now discovered we the ancient tomes. We we have we are fucking horror archaeologists here. So yeah, just in case you're new here, we're going to be following our normal format where Topher takes us through who made this thing, shouting out the cast and crew, and then I'll take us through the plot. And then in our third installment, we will analyze said plot. But first, we've got some horror news coming at ya. Topher? The trailer for Nope dropped, and it's so good. It's two minutes, and I still have no idea what's going to happen in this fucking movie. Yes, all I know is Kiki Palmer is giving me major, major bisexual fantasy energy, <laughs> and which I am clearly into. And um, yeah, I have no idea what else is happening. All we know is there's a weird cloud and horses. And Kiki Palmer is going to be amazing in it. That's yeah. all I know. Daniel Kaluuya is still hot. Yep, yep. Stephen Yun still hot. Hundred percent. So that's that's all we know from two minutes. That's all we know, and yeah. I think it's fantastic. Cannot abs. I just cannot wait. Another Go ahead and watch it. Four, uh, five yeah. more months, babe. I know the the summer's going to be really fruitful for us. I can feel <laughs> it. Knock on wood. <laughs> Do we have any other news, or was that it? That's pretty. It's that's pretty that's big the news. only news I okay. give a shit about. You know, okay. Yeah. No, that's fair. That's fair. Um, if that's going to be our only news, it's pretty good news. Yeah. So anyway, I guess without further ado, who made this thing? Uh, so it was directed by Robert Vina. Uh, this is easily his most famous film, but he uh, he worked a lot because, you know, it turns out it was really easy to make movies because he would just shoot them. Uh, he had 52 directing credits for, between 1913 and 1934. Yeah. Uh, or 38. And yeah, so. <laughs> mm-hmm. But if you were not living in Germany at the time, you probably don't know the rest of his work other than The Hands of Orlac, which is a really fun, goofy horror film from the era as well. Yeah. I guess it looks goofy now, but. Right. Uh, it was written by the writing team Carl Mayer and Hans Janowitz. Big, big deal, dudes. They they were incredible. But So they worked together a few times. Um, they would... Uh, a lot of their films were, and especially Mayer, a lot of his films were directed by uh, someone we've already covered this month, F.W. Bruneau. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I'll talk more about their background later. Very interesting people. Right. Um, no question. Uh, as our stars are cast here, we have Werner Krauss as the titular Dr. Caligari, mm-hmm. Conrad Veet as Cesari, and, you know, we don't actually know how to pronounce all of these just because yeah. it's a silent film. Surprise, the second one this month, guys. Yep. Uh, Friedrich Fair as Franzis. Lil Dagover as Stop. Jane Olsen. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be Lil, like like, like yes, Lily. the name Lily, yeah, like Lil. But it's Lillian. But Lil Dagover. <laughs> I'm, I'm obsessed. Um, Hans Heinrich von Twardowski. 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 I don't know how to speak, say his last name. Yeah, apologies uh, for as, <laughs> this. I apologize hack job. for nothing. I apologize for not a goddamn thing. <sighs> and then Rudolf Lettinger as Doctor. Olsen. So what's cool about this is with the when it comes to the music, like we talked about in Nosferatu, because he would have been these would have been scored live um, by a, by an organist. There is no person, one person who actually did the music, right? Yeah, that and was a job that for, came much later. Yeah, so this was a, it was up for interpretation 
Giuseppe Becci uh, was the one who did the premiere. Uh, so he, we actually do have a record of who was the who the original organist was. Nice, which is rare for these sorts of things, right? right. Um, but yeah, there's been all sorts of different great uh, musicians who have scored this film in its different iterations throughout the uh, last hundred and two years <laughs> since it pre- since it premiered. She um, old. She, she ain't young. Yeah. Um, Willie Haymeister or Hamaster was our cinematographer. Production design was from Walter Ryman, Walter Rorig, and Herman Varm, as was the set decoration also by Herman Varm, and costume design from Walter Ryman. These are, yeah, I'm I'm mentioning all of them because we are definitely going to be talking about the design of this movie. Yeah. It is super, super cool. Uh, Let's see. It has a runtime of 74 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's nice and tight, but it was long for the day. Yeah. And uh, came out, actually we're covering it near enough its birthday, came out 26th of February, 1920 was the premiere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're kind of, yeah. And it was an expensive movie for the time. Right. $12,300. Oh, Lord. So, yeah. It's expensive uh, for today for me. Yeah. I mean, not for Hollywood, <laughs> I guess, but for me. No, thank you. <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot to to unpack with this movie, and I love this. I talk about it all the time, and everybody's like, what are you talking about? Why are you talking about this old movie? Um, but do you know how I got introduced to it? I have a feeling you're going to tell me. I typically do. Yeah. You can tell me to shut up, and I'll just leave. This is my podcast now. No, I need you. What? It's a passive takeover, not a hostile takeover. Yeah. <laughs> Very shruggy takeover. You know, that's how, that is that is how I would take over, though. <laughs> I would just be like, eh. eh. Fine. I know you want to give it to me. Just I would just manipulate. <laughs> I would, like, no hostility. Just like, you know, aren't you tired? Just like. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. Okay. Well, uh, how? So, How? do you remember the sketch show Portlandia from Fred Armisen and uh, Carrie Brownstein? I've seen a couple of episodes, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, with your favorite, uh, uh, what's his name? The hot man from Twin Peaks? Oh, yes, yes, yes. What's his real name? I don't know. I don't learn people's names, especially men. Right. <laughs> Damn it. I want to cut a lot of that, but that was really funny. <laughs> Kyle McLaughlin. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. The guy who can't get it up in Sex in the City. I was about to say that. I know him better as Trey from Sex in the City because that's the first thing I saw. Trey with ED. Oh, Trey. Mama's boy. Oh, boy. Anyhow. Yeah. Let's do this. So, in Portlandia, there's this sketch that's all about, like, you have, like, it's the, it's a cursed, like, VHS, basically. Mm-hmm. And this guy just, like, he's, like, goes to a video store to rent it and then, like, the guy, the clerk pushes it on him and then it's like, it's this whole thing. Like, and I was like, what is, I thought it was a fake movie. Oh, right. Uh, and I had no idea. I just never heard of this movie. You know, it wasn't like watching, I watch a lot of old films, but by that, I mean like from 1940s on. Yeah. Um, and so I had no clue what this was. And I looked it up one. I just was like thinking about it one day. It's like, I looked it up and I was like, wait, this is a real, so I was just like, Oh, it's gotta be in the public domain. It's fucking old. Went and found it on YouTube, watched it. It was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, you guys can find it for free on Shudder. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess if you have a Shudder subscription. but Which you should. It's very cheap and very useful. 
Yeah, and if you're listening to us, it, honestly, it'll pay for itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we cover a lot of movies that are only on Shutter. So, yeah, um, that's how I found out about it, just because I thought it was a joke from Portlandia. And then <laughs> I was like, oh. It's a good way to discover it. Yeah. You know? It's a good time. Love that. So, anyway, uh, why don't we talk about what happens in this movie, babe? Um, a lot. Okay, so we have Francis. Francis is sitting on a bench with this older man. He's complaining that spirits have driven him away from his family and home. A dazed woman named Jane passes him. You know, like normal stuff. Yeah. Little Dagover Dagover takes over the scene right here. Jane's fantastic. Normal, normal bench conversations about spirits that have driven him away from his family and home. Like... I naturally... You know, I've had the same conversation in in Central Park. (laughs) Um, I, I promptly left, but... I guess maybe my life would have been more interesting if I hadn't. <laughs> um, so then, yeah, little Dago. <laughs> can't. <laughs> um, um, a woman named Jane passes them, and then Francis explains that she's his fiance. They've never met. <laughs> this is unbeknownst to her, but. <laughs> sorry. She doesn't I'm, know shit. Right. Um, I'm rewriting this movie. I'm sorry. It's fun. That's what um, interpretation is. Right, sure. And um, that they, they have suffered a great ordeal. Most of the rest of the film is like a flashback of Francis's story, which takes place in Holston Wall, a shadowy village of twisted buildings and spiraling streets, which I fucking love. It, the design, we'll talk more about is, that yes, later, yes. but like, it's fucking cool. And then Francis and his friend Alan, who are good-naturedly competing for Jane's affections. Alan's gay. Oh, my God. Like... Just... I'm throwing out my interpretations already, just because... Fuck it. Alan loves Francis. Francis loves Jane. Jane doesn't know who either of them are. It's a real Troy and Abed situation. Mm -hmm. So they're going to visit the town fair. And while this is happening, a mysterious man named Dr. Caligari... Seeks a permit from the rude town clerk. He, I love the that. The town clerk is a dick. You know, that would be. I'm, I would love to be a rude town clerk. <laughs> um, that is that is what my name tag says. Uh, to present a spectacle at the fair, which features a sleepwalker, and then the clerk mocks and berates Caligari, but ultimately approves the permit. He's like, sure. And then that night, the clerk is found stabbed to death in his bed. Dead man, dead man, blood. Dead. The next morning, Francis and Alice, or Alice, who the fuck is Alice? Um, Then, the next morning, Francis and Alan visit Caligari's spectacle, where he opens a coffin-like box to reveal the sleeping sleepwalker. And then on Caligari's order, the sleepwalker awakens and answers questions from the audience. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And then despite Francis's protests, Alan asks, how long shall I live? To Alan's horror, our sleepwalker answers, the time is short. You die at dawn. <laughs> <laughs> Dead by dawn. Dead by uh, dawn. Dead by dawn. <laughs> Oh, God, I love how much we reference that. Um, (laughs) Later that night, a figure breaks into Alan's home and stabs him to death in his bed. And then a grief-stricken Francis investigates Alan's murder to help from with help from Jane and her father, Dr. Olson, who obtains police authorization to investigate this bro. 
And then that night, the police apprehend a criminal in possession of a knife who was caught attempting to murder an elderly woman. Mm-hmm. Leave her alone. She's old. She's going to die soon anyway. Leave, Leave her alone. Leave her alone. And then when, when questioned by Francis and Dr. Olson, the criminal confesses he tried to kill the elderly woman, but denies any part in the two previous deaths. He was merely taking advantage of the situation to divert blame away from himself. And then at night, Francis spies on Caligari and observes what appears to be our sleepwalker sleeping in his box. However, the real guy sneaks into Jane's home as she sleeps. He raises a knife to stab her, but then instead decides to abduct her after a struggle, dragging her through the window onto the street. Cute. We love. We love a good kidnapping. Wow. Um, I'm going to go steal a lady. Right? Ugh. I feel like that's how most marriages happened in the past. You stole a lady and then she's married to you. Das ist mine. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. That's a cut. No, it's not. (laughs) Did I even say that right? I don't speak German. I don't fucking know. It's still funny. And then chased by an angry mob, he eventually drops Jane... Gives her a concussion, physically drops yeah. her. Um, and if she's got a concussion, you have to keep her conscious. Ask her questions. What's seven times seven? Stuff she knows. Oh, wait, what is that from? It's a TikTok sound right now, but I can't remember what it is. I know I've seen it. Stuff she knows. Oh, my God, that's from, like, a movie. Ah, that's going to kill me. Um, anyway, eventually, uh, yeah, drops Jane and, and runs away. He soon collapses and dies. He's died. Um, Francis confirms that the criminal who confessed to the elderly woman's murder is still locked away and could not have been Jane's attacker. Like, no way, Jose. Um, Francis and the police investigate Caligari's sideshow and realize that the sleepwalker is sleeping in the box is only a dummy. It's a dummy. It's a dummy, just like me, because that quote, it's from Clueless. Yes, that's right. Oh my god, it's when they're at the party and yes. Ty gets knocked in the head and stuff she knows. It's Cher that says that, yep. Uh, I love, I love, I want to, I've watched that movie probably more than anything I've ever watched in my life. <laughs> um, Caligari escapes in the confusion. Francis follows and sees Caligari go through the entrance of an insane asylum. Why are we at the insane asylum? We're about to find mm, out. Upon further curious. investigation, Francis is shocked to learn that Caligari is the asylum's director. Bum, bum, bum. With help from the asylum staff, Francis studies the director's records and diary while the director is sleeping. The writings reveal his obsession with the story of an 18th century mystic named Caligari who used a sleepwalker named... Caesar, yeah. Yes, Caesar. Or Cesare or something like that, I'm not sure. Um, to commit murders in northern Italian towns. The director, attempting to understand the earlier Caligari, experiments on a sleepwalker admitted to the asylum, who becomes his Caesar or Cesare. I have no idea. Um, Because, again, silent film. Don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, The asylum director screams, I must become Caligari. (laughs) Uh, Francis and the doctors call the police to Caligari's office, where they show him um, the corpse of our sleepwalker. Caligari then attacks one of the staff. He is subdued, restrained in a straitjacket, and becomes an inmate in his own asylum. 
And then the narrative returns to our present day where Francis concludes his story in a twist ending. Francis is depicted as an asylum inmate. Jane and um, Caesar are patients as well. Jane believes that she is a queen, while Caesar is not a sleepwalker, but awake, quiet, and not visibly dangerous. Mm -hmm. And then the man Francis refers to as Dr. Caligari is the asylum director. Francis attacks him and is restrained in a straitjacket, then placed in the same cell where Caligari was confined in Francis's story. Ooh. Ooh. The asylum director announces that now that he understands Francis's delusion, he is confident that he can cure him. And that's it. That's it. That's it. It's over. Done. Yeah, I love the twist ending here. It's a lot of fun. Um, and it's definitely, it's got to be like the first one ever, right? At least in film. Yeah, it would have to be. And I I love that it's something... It's the most obvious thing in this movie that we still see today, where you think you're on one narrative, mm-hmm. and then in the last like couple of minutes of the film, you are shown that every everything you just saw was either not real or was something completely different than what you thought you were seeing. It's like it gaslights you at the end. Like none of this was real. You thought, you thought. Yeah. And then, I I mean, this movie is obviously inspired so many things and so many people. Um, Our previous film that we covered, Nosferatu, it even, it inspired Virginia Virginia Woolf. Mm -hmm. Um, Virginia Woolf said that, it was so cool that how the set really mirrored, the set design mirrored the emotions felt by the characters and the audience. She said, it seemed as if thought could be conveyed by shape more effectively than words, which I think is a really interesting, is a really interesting take on it. Yeah. Um, which is, I mean, I, I certainly, I certainly agree that they really, for this to be the first horror film, they really came out swinging with that, like, really cool, twisty, yeah. uh, geometric, like, uh, set design and everything. Yeah, so we mentioned some of this in our uh, episode a couple weeks ago on Nosferatu. Yeah. Um, the style here is, like, the clearest demonstration of German expressionism as a visual art medium. Yeah, definitely. Um, and you could also include, like, art, like uh, painters like Gustav Klimt in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're all pulling from these same sorts of looks because they were all contemporaries, right? And so I think that's what's so interesting about this in terms. That's why I was calling out like set directors and or set decorators and shit like that. Yeah, it's it was also because you had to force perspective, mm-hmm. so it was practical as well as as well as aesthetic. Yeah. So because you didn't have like depth of field in the camera, the way that we do now, um, and cameras weren't really mobile yet Mm -hmm. then you had to force perspective and show things and so they would stage it like they would a play and so the camera would be set someplace and they would move through the scene and then that's it yeah but having them go from top to bottom and still be able to like see them that's those are like really steep uh ramps they're not actual roads or anything like that yeah and same with the um with the the bedroom scenes and all of that also very inspired by Van Gogh mm-hmm. and his paintings. Um, and yeah, I just love when aesthetics meet practicality. Yeah, no, and I think, and a lot of people have um, been inspired by that. I mean, it's 
first of all, this has been adapted for the stage. It's been turned into an opera. Mm-hmm. Um, it was screened as part of the David Bowie exhibit in the Victorian Albert Museum in um, uh, 2013. Uh, he loved the film so much that he asked that the stage sets for his like 1974 Diamond Dogs tour yeah. of his um, captured the spirit of the original. And if you look at uh, photos, press photos from that tour, you can definitely see it like the geometrical, like the buildings and everything that was um, built behind him for that tour. Yeah. It's really it's really cool. And I mean, honestly. Honestly, it fits his aesthetic. So I yeah. love, I love that. Like, if David Bowie were were alive and and famous in the in, in nineteen twenty, I would fully think I would that he would have been that. Yeah. in this. Yeah, well, <laughs> like, it's, um, it works. Yeah, so I got to see some of that exhibit. Uh, it was it was included as part of the David Bowie is. Uh, oh, that's uh, right. You did see that. Yeah, yeah at the Brooklyn cool. Museum a few years ago. Yeah, and they talked a lot about that. There was a whole set and stage with that, and it also he was living. He did three albums in Berlin. Yeah, and his whole time there, he was like deeply, deeply inspired by German expressionism. Yes, like you see all of his sets and his outfits and everything like that. Like he stayed with it for years because mm-hmm. that was in the late seventies and early eighties when he was doing his uh, Berlin albums. Yeah, so he definitely you know took that to heart and it really became his aesthetic for a long time yeah which is so funny for someone who's known for changing their uh, aesthetic like the most people change their socks yeah he stuck what he was so inspired by it that he kept reiterating it in different ways and reinterpreting it in different ways yeah it's it's super cool and um and i mean it for better or for worse also like tim burton was obviously very inspired by this um uh, Edward Scissorhands was literally based off of um, Caesar. Like yes, the makeup yes. and like the whole design design of that character was based off of Caesar, which Edward Scissorhands is is one of the Tim Burton films that I do like. Um, I like I like a few Tim Burton films, obviously like uh, Beetlejuice and whatnot, but it's it's really just him as a person that I can't stand. Um, <laughs> yes, like we talk about it all the time. Yeah. But I, you know, I like, I do like a lot of his films and I, I really like Edward Scissorhands. Um, and I love that um, that character was inspired by uh, Caesar in this. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, oh my God, the most obvious, the, the most obvious is David Lynch. Yes. Yes. Specifically, we did like, talk about this on Nosferatu, but like with Eraserhead. The most obvious is, and, is David Lynch. Uh, then you look at the uh, the Black Lodge and Twin Peaks, clearly inspired by these sets and this vibe. But yeah, I think it's it's so interesting. Um, yeah, just seeing the way he designed everything that happens in the alternate dimension. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all clearly, clearly based on German Expressionism. It's it, like you can't even pretend that it isn't. Um, also, yeah. the Elephant Man was heavily inspired by the like. It's a true story, but the way he designed the sets and the way he thought through it was clearly. He said that as the he vibes. said as much yeah, that it was inspired by Caligari have specifically. You, have you seen the um, the nineteen eighty nine sequel, Doctor Caligari? Apparently, it's very like it's like a cult film that's like very erotic. I've never I've never even heard of this. What? So apparently, it's the. Um, the granddaughter of the original Caligari performs illegal experiments on her patients at the Caligari Insane Asylum. And uh, all I'm seeing that it's described as here is the cult 1989 erotic sequel. <laughs> so I don't know. I might have to watch that. I'm curious. When I write my memoirs, it's going to be called an erotic sequel. 
An erotic sequel? Yeah. Amazing. But yeah, I mean... Uh, and then I'm going to pretend that the, there was an actual prequel, but no, no one can ever find it. Wow. Talk about intrigue. <laughs> <laughs> so I do love the... This was one of the... So talking about like origins and shit, right? Yeah. So this is one of the first times we ever see a frame story used. Right. So the idea of having the prologue and epilogue where we have two completely different things going on, right? Yeah. Where in the beginning we're like, oh, Francis is a normal guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but oh no, these poor fam- this poor family and how they've been driven away. And then he tells what we believe to be a true story. And then it flips at the end because it's the same setting but different people. Yes. Or like different uh, iterations of those characters. And I think that's so, so clever that they were like that's that's a that was a brand new idea at the time. Yeah. Like I love that. I mean someone always has to come up with something, right? Yeah. But you go, "Oh shit." Like when you realize it's the first one, you see it and yeah. you have to think about that like to see that for the first time, to never have seen anything use something like 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 a uh, uh, fiction had used it before. Yeah. But to see it done on film a brand new medium at the time. That's just, I can't believe that that wasn't just the coolest shit anybody had ever seen. No, 100%. And, um, so we do get this twist at the end and everything, but what's also really cool about it is that they're utilizing all of these kind of out there, um, like the German expressionism. It's obviously expressive. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, it's in the name. Um, But they're using that to their advantage where we are a little thrown off for the entire film. We're a little like this. This movie is highly, highly stylized, right? It's a distorted vision of our world or the world that they've created, whatever. The sets look very artificial. Everything is kind of a little bit jerky and we've got a lot of robotic acting and the makeup is very dramatic. We've got all of these things. Everything just feels a little bit off. Yes. Right? And yeah, that it's like is we an- talk about with the gothic, yeah. Yes, and that is another um, tool that was used here that has been, that is still being used to this day. Just uh, different camera angles, the the really stilted feeling of acting, which is where like a lot of, uh, David Lynch utilizes that a lot. Yeah. Especially in something like Twin Peaks where you've got um, a very, you know, normal, mundane seeming town. But everyone's just a little bit off. Yeah, it everybody's, feels like you're everybody's in a dream. Just, yeah. It feels like you're in a dream because everyone is saying things in a very stilted manner. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what what this is doing. We, we, we've got... And then on top of that, when you've got like these themes of... like uh, These nightmare themes. Um, you've got like the paranoia. You've got all of these. And then obviously murder. Yes. It, on top of all of this, it's just like... You can totally see where... It's really cool to see where this genre started because I think that this is probably one of the most clear beginnings of a genre. Um, I'd say that's fair, yeah. You know, I I feel like not every other film genre has such a specific birth. Sure. I mean, other than I would say right around this time and friend of the writers, uh, Fritz Lang. Yeah. Because Metropolis is the first sci-fi film. Right, which right. is right around the same time, and that's kind of that's definitely. Um, I would. I mean, we've talked about it before. How sci-fi is in very much so in line with horror. Oh yeah, they go hand in hand a versa. lot of times. Yeah, a lo- yeah, a lot of times. Um, and that they're both always, they're not always, they're both often parables. Yeah, 
um, yeah. and warnings and things like that. I just think it's I just think it's really it's really interesting and very exciting to actually be able to go all the way back and be like, wow, like this is not dissimilar from what we watch today. No, not at all. And I think it's <laughs> it it's one of those you maybe talk about knocking it out of the park on your first try. <laughs> I mean, poster child, low. So I, it's so yeah because I'm also thinking about Terry Gilliam is heavily inspired by this, yeah. right? Even when he was still still doing the animations for Python mm-hmm. um, in the '60s, he was he said he's like yeah no Cabinet uh, Doctor Caligari dope also very much inspired my he's like that and Hieronymus Bosch are what made me want to like do the visuals for Monty Python like this. Absolutely. And he continues it visually into his own films to this day. Yeah. Terrence Malick, same thing. Um, I'm just like, I'm running through all these directors, none of whom are really horror directors except for David Lynch. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, y'all all do this shit. But like, I'm looking at this and I'm just like listing off first in my head. And I'm like, okay, so first one to use strange and unknowable geography, right? Yeah. Like, lo- like localized geography, not just like what the, where the world is, but like how are we moving about this space? Yeah. Where is anything? I don't know. No idea. Even like how to f- get through a single open room feels like a nightmare scape, right? Like it's that whole idea of like uh, trying to like run through molasses in a dream because your legs are tangled up in the blankets or whatever. Yeah. Or like I've had dreams where I'm fighting somebody and every pu- every punch I throw is completely ineffective, right? 100%, yeah. And it's kind of like that. I feel like you can't move through this world. Yeah. And that the jerky movements are the only way to do it. And that is enough to freak me out. It makes, me, it makes it feel alien. Yeah, right? it's like it's claustrophobic. It's not free. It's very... And yeah. is it, yeah, and you aren't free within this world. Yeah. I love that. And like, I mean, th- there's been so many different analyses of this film. Um, everybody and their mother has had something to say about it. But that's my yeah. favorite one is that it does, it feels like a nightmare because you can't, you could not move it through it as a human. Right. Yeah, there have been a lot of interpretations of this film, even, um, even so far as saying that, um, saying that this film is is one of the reasons why Hitler came to power. Oh my god. <laughs> just It's so, so I mean everyone's yeah. tried to blame art from the very beginning. Let's just talk about that for all of like Yeah, you let's know, let's go the, ahead and hit dive into that. Yeah, the negative things that have happened a lot of people like to blame art for causing it. Mainly because art is a reflection of what is happening. I don't think it predicts things. Not really. Not really. Uh, unless yeah. you're The Simpsons. The Simpsons have gotten... Re- it's, I, those it's, episodes have yeah. gotten really eerie to me. <laughs> and that is an exception in this conversation. But even then, I... I, <laughs> I yes. They are. They have predicted nothing. It's all just like... They're all like, no, dude, we were just making the stupidest joke possible. It turns out we live in the stupidest timeline. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's completely true. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's so funny because this I view this movie as very anti-authoritarian, but there's people who argue that the frame story does make it authoritarian, like pro-authority. Right, right, yeah. Um, but when you look at the lives of like Mayer and uh, Janowitz, they were both draft dodgers. Yeah. <laughs> Mayer in- like, created the character of Caligari because he pretended he was insane to not have to join the war. And yeah. so he had to go and undergo intense uh, psychoevaluation all the time. And that made him hate psychoanalysis and also create the character of Caligari. 
100%. Yeah. Yeah. They were both like hardcore pacifists, did not believe in the state, did not think the state was good for you. Yeah. They were, this is about freedom and again, expression. Yes. But yeah, I, there's no way that you, oh my God. I, sorry. I know, I know the, the article or the book you're referencing the one from 1947 or 48. Yeah. Yeah. From Caligari to Hitler. Yeah, people love to. I yeah, I think it's a stretch. I think it's. I think it's a. Uh, I think it's exactly what you're saying. This is where the experiences of the creators actually um, informs the movie. Most mm-hmm. of the time, we're like we're like eh, like you know separate the creator from the creation. Um, but in, mm. inevitably, it's 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 tied. Um, and I think that if you're questioning whether something is on like opposite ends of the spectrum like for this or against this you you kind of have to look at the um life of the creator yeah i think that's exactly right and And looking and well because it matters yeah like knowing what someone's point of view yeah it's it's important especially when you come in if you're going to start interpreting artwork and saying what's the theme here yeah you have to look at who the person is it provides it provides context and yeah. And, and sometimes it makes it even more interesting. It's like this person went through this and then the story spawned from that experience. And it just makes, I don't know, it just makes the, um, if you're a nerd, it makes your experience <laughs> richer with whatever it is. Yeah. I, <laughs> so when we get, when we talk about the idea that the freight, so the reason that Krakauer, who wrote from Calgary to Hitler, yeah, um, claimed that the, Frame story was added to make the film pro authoritarian and not and like having if it had not had the frame story it wouldn't have been right. So there was this rumor that there in the original script had never been a frame story. Okay. So the only one who had a original script mm-hmm. was Werner Krauss, who didn't die until the fifties. Right. So it and it was he was he kept it tight. Yeah. Um, he was like, no, nah, it's mine. And but that was the whole. That's when Krakauer was like, yeah, no, it's got to be. Like, they added it later so they could get it published. And it's like, no, dude, it was in there from the jump. Right. Like, you're just dumb. <laughs> yeah, people like be, to come up with Be better at researching, that, guy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's so interesting to watch this movie now and looking backwards and wondering what it would have been like to see it in 1920, but really, really believing yeah. that it's... Uh, I think it's fully anti-authoritarian. I can't... Like it, it's all of these. We've talked about the we talked about the Weimar Republic in a little bit in our Nosferatu episode. Mm-hmm. That was a time of like what we call bohemian living, right? Like it was a big thing. Artists were popping up everywhere. Everything sucked, um, and so it just yeah was like go off, do the best you can with the time you have. You have this lost generation in Germany of people who were uh, mangled and who lost family and home and everything in the First World War yeah. for nothing because it was just a pissing contest between a bunch of cousins. Right. So the people were left behind. Mm-hmm. And so they said, well, fuck it. We're going to do our own thing. And that's where you get all of this. But it is it looks at authority as brutal. Yeah. It doesn't like when it switches to the what we believe to be the true story the end of the movie right Mm -hmm. that francis is uh crazy yeah and caligari is just his doctor yeah he's like i understand i can fix you they were probably not like just knowing what mayor went through i think that that 
is a really uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It is anti-establishment. Yeah. Because Francis lives in a wonderful world. Why should he not allow be allowed to live that life? Mm-hmm. And Caligari saying, I can cure you now. Right. I think it's a, it's it's an argument for artistic expression, for so many people who were considered crazy or lunatics or what have you because of their fantastical ideas. Yeah. Would, and it's saying, would you call any artist crazy and want to cure them and make them into a cog in this machine that doesn't care about them? Yeah, I get that. You know? Yeah, no, I, I fully I fully see that. And I mean that's that's the thing with a type of film that isn't fully straightforward, is that if anyone's going to have their own interpretation of it, which I mean, to be honest, that's <laughs> that's free press, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like I I don't know. I, I think I, yeah, I just don't like when people are like, Yeah, no, it's uh <laughs> Everything is bad because I say so. I'm just like, shut up. Stop right. talking. Um, I also love the idea that this is a, considered a double life narrative. Yeah, definitely. That people are like, um, that Francis has to hide something within himself and only find somebody he trusts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then is because he trusts that person is actually... Um, punished for it exactly yes yeah. thank you yeah i think that's such a cool interpretation of this like especially because we talked about in nosferatu that there is a uh somewhat of a trans narrative to that movie that we discussed because that was a big thing like um right variations of being trans in Weimar in the Weimar republic yeah uh that people would look at this and go yeah that is what we uh that's what we do here like we're gonna yeah. put the obvious. We're gonna. It'll be obvious to those who know. It's that it really, if you know, you know. Sort of situations. Yeah, that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's hard to talk about the techniques more than we already have. Um, I don't know much about the filming techniques, and honestly, they're not that interesting. It's not like with Onibaba, where that was like really cool stuff that we know a lot about. Yeah. This would have been like literally like the crank turn camera. It's in one spot. You get a few shots and then it's already full. And now you got to go change it and do another thing. Right. Yeah. I will say I do like um, the use of like the iris um, effect, like the iris lens. Like it looks like you're opening your eyes Mm -hmm. because it's kind of it kind of sets you up to feel like you are, um, you know, something that not everybody does. You're kind of getting a first person experience of the movie, which is kind of cool. I mean, if someone used it today, I'd be like, okay, like, (laughs) all right. But it's cool. But it's it's, cool because it was like, you know, some of the first um, shots like that. No, I completely agree. And it's so, I just, it's so funny to talk about things that are brand new at the time, but, but now we'd probably roll our eyes at. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) All right, pal. Uh, Also, if y'all need any other affirmation that this movie is anti-authoritarian and not a prelude to the Nazis, Karl Mayer was Jewish and a pacifist. Janowitz was best friends with a Jewish man and a pacifist. And Mayer fled to the States uh, to escape the Nazi regime. He's like, nope. Or, to, sorry, to London, not the States. Um, yeah, he's not like... <laughs> <laughs> there you go if you ever needed anything else right um but yeah that's that's more or less what i have to say on this movie it's fantastic watch it it's so fun it's so cool uh yeah it's good to know where we've been to know where we're going exactly that yeah sort of thing and then this movie still is kind of scary like it's a little freaky yeah 
It's again the them disorienting us the amount that they do is it's, it's, it's a effective. Lot. Yeah. <laughs> um it's effective. So yeah, that that's really my closing um statement on this is that obviously go and watch it because it's good to know where you've come from and mm-hmm. you'll probably spot things that you've seen in some of your favorite movies and say, "Oh, that's where that came from." Yeah. Um so yeah, definitely 10 out of 10, definitely go watch if you yeah, haven't already. It's a lot of fun. I mean, there's nothing that I can criticize about it that isn't like a stuff of the time, you know? Oh, yeah, exactly. Like, okay, there's no interesting camera work. Well, it couldn't be. It wasn't available to us. Yeah, it was literally not possible. Yeah. And someone figured out a way to do it later, but it was not able to be the case, right? Yeah. Okay, the acting is, like, I can't evaluate the acting. Why? Because I don't, under, I can't, that's one thing I can't get myself in the mindset of, you know? Yeah, being like, an actor in the 20s, I don't know. Yeah, and you're on film for the first time ever. You don't have any self-awareness of what you look like on film. No one like, did, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, all that considered, it's pretty astonishing mm-hmm. what um, was created from that. I think I think that wraps us up, yeah? That does everything for me. That does it. <laughs> okay, bye. All right, bye. So you guys know where to find us. We're on Instagram at Horror Babes Podcast. We're on Twitter at Horror Babes Pod. And we have a website, horrorbabespod.com. If you guys are enjoying this podcast, give us a little rating review if you feel so inclined on mm-hmm. iTunes. And until next time, bye, bye babes. Hey, babe. Yeah, babe. Yeah, babe.